you could go to journalism school. It'll be great. You'll get a great education. Or you could come and help me with this project. And then maybe we could work together for like a year and you could basically do like an old school apprenticeship. And so that's what I did. And so I moved to Oxford, Mississippi, <laughs> rented a house down the street from him and I helped him with the World Cup stuff. And then after that, I stuck with him for about another nine months, worked with him as he went back to writing feature stories and saw how an ESPN the magazine story comes together. Everything from how do you cope with the idea? How do you do the reporting? What's the research like? Who do you interview? After you do the interviews, how do you turn it into a draft? How do you work to the draft? All that stuff. So it was like an unbelievable training ground. Couldn't have been luckier. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man? Hey, Steve. How are you doing today? It's a, uh, a hot Wednesday here in Asheville, but uh, always always cool to be talking to you. That was smooth, Brad, but I'm just going to have to say it is not hot in Asheville. It is hot in Houston. I would die to live in Asheville right now, but I'm sure everything's going good. I am excited. I might be hot, but I am excited to have this conversation today because we've got a special guest. Yeah, really stoked. Um, today, we are going to be talking to Clay Skipper, who is a phenomenal profile writer and interviewer. His work is all over the place, but um, most frequently in GQ, and um, just really, really good at the craft, and has interviewed, wow, just such a long list of people that I would be... Um, to be honest, probably like pretty overwhelmed to be in the same room as. So we're talking people like athletes, Tom Brady, Steph Curry, Joel Embiid, uh, George Saunders. Longtime listeners know I'm the ultimate fanboy of George, George Saunders and um, just a lot of other like really big names and interesting people. All right. So let's dive into it. Clay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm uh phoning in from a breezy, wintry 85 in New York City. So sorry you guys can't uh, be here to enjoy that cool weather. <laughs> you know, we could talk about uh, weather all day, but our, our listeners would probably <laughs> sign off and say, what in the world happened to you guys? But I want to start, you know, I I want to start actually with something that Brad mentioned there, and then we'll get back into how you got to this point. But man, the list of people you have interviewed is like a huge who's who of anything that essentially Brad and I care about sports, writing, um, people, self-help, even like some great researchers, et cetera. How do you not walk in or maybe you do, how do you deal with that? Like having these world-class people and not being overcome by like imposter syndrome? Well, <laughs> it's a good question. I think, uh, I, Definitely felt uh, imposter syndrome because um, it is a little overwhelming. I think the one thing you re I realized fairly quickly though is these people are so often treated like put on such a pedestal that if you can go into a room with them and just relate to them one on one as much as possible, it puts them at ease and actually gets them to open up because they just. Like they really want to just have a honest 
dialogue and exchange and they don't want to be put on that pedestal. So I think I definitely fanboyed out a lot over a lot of these people. Um, but I think pretty quickly you realize that the more comfortable you can be around them, the more comfortable they are in return. So it's really like a, a give and take, but it's hard. I mean, I definitely still have imposter syndrome. Um, like I talked to Steph Curry in 2016 and I remember going to that just like super, super, super nervous. Um, how old were you? Then? Yeah. 2016, I would have been 27. Yeah. So you're also like, you know, you're fairly young going to talk to Steph Curry. He was younger then too, but he still could shoot the lights out. Yeah. Yeah. I do think the, the age is an interesting aspect too. Cause as I've gotten older, you know, I'm, I'm older than a lot of, a lot of these, especially the athletes in particular, not so much the authors and whatnot, but, um, so I realized they're probably a little bit nervous as well. Cause they're, you know, sometimes they're new to the media thing. They're new to talking to a reporter. And so you can also meet on that level, right? Where it's like, I'm a little nervous to meet you. You're probably a little nervous to meet me. Let's just like cut through that as quickly as we can and just, and just start getting down to it. Who's been your favorite interview so far? Or let me reframe that. Not your favorite, but because we're kind of hitting this, um, hitting this drum about like, Oh shit, I got to walk into a room with Tom Brady and maybe that's the answer, but who's been the most like, Oh shit, I got to call up this person or walk into a room with this person. I think for me, it was probably Patrick Mahomes just because it, for a few reasons. One is just the, the, you know, hot profile of who that is. Um, you know, NFL MVP, two time Super Bowl champion though. When I talked to him, he was only one time Super Bowl champion. Um, and that was also my first cover story at GQ. Right. So it's a, it was a whole host of things where it's like, you're talking to an elite talent. Um, and then also for my own professional ambition, that was like, there was a lot of pressure on, on me doing that well. So I think he was definitely, of all the people I've talked to, that was like probably one of the ones where I went in with the most sort of, all right, this is, this feels like a big deal, you know? Uh, okay. I love that Mahomes piece and I, I suggest listeners read it. And one of the reasons I, I love it is you get a different sense of who Mahomes is. And this is uh, true across all of your pieces, I feel like. And in particular, the sporting ones, because I'm like a sports nut, so I know who these people are. I've heard them talk, et cetera. And I'm like going into these pieces, you know, to refresh and reading your stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, I, I know. I've, you know, I've watched the interviews. I've seen them. And then you come away with a kind of refreshing approach. So I have two questions on this. One ties to something back that you said earlier is, you know, that how to get them open up. But I, I want to not only how to get them open up, how do you get these athletes who are inundated with interviews and media out of what I'd call the same old story mode, meaning they give you the canned responses that they've, they've practiced, they've given to, you know, 50 other interviewers? So I will say, I'll, I'll take credit for one part of this, which is the, the easiest answer to that is preparation. Right. So like I learned very early on from a mentor, a good friend of mine, a guy named Wright Thompson, who's like, I think one of the best writers out there right now. He was like, before you go to interview anyone, you have to read any, like everything that's out there about them and try to watch every interview. That's harder now because like, you know, these people go on every talk show <laughs> so often you can only 
do so much, but like every major interview they've done, every major profile that's been written about them, you just have to like relentlessly prepare so that you know what they've talked about before. Because a, a way to get someone to close down pretty quickly and to go into sort of autopilot mode where they are recycling old stories is to ask them a question that they're like, I've answered this like 16 times. And then I think it triggers, especially if they're an athlete, right? Their preparation is such a big deal to them that it sort of triggers in them like, okay, clearly this person didn't prepare, right? So I think that the part I'll take credit for is I'll say like, I, will, I try to relentlessly prepare for these interviews so that I can know what's out there and try to push the conversation forward or get them to, to elab. Maybe, maybe I read it and I was like, there's more here and try to get them to elaborate on something they've said before, but in a different way. But I will also say that like the part where I don't want to mistake uh, the ass for the chair is like, I was sitting in the chair of GQ. Right. And so that did give me access to these people in a way that it gave me access to other people just generally don't get right with Patrick Mahomes. I got two, two hour interviews. And so you spend four hours with Patrick Mahomes. Most people aren't getting that sort of access and that sort of time. And so in some ways you just around a person for a longer period of time, you're going to get more interesting stuff. So I, I will take credit and say that like preparation would played a huge part, but also I just got the type of access that felt very sort of um, exclusive and unique. Uh, okay. I want to follow that up with, how do you not drive yourself nuts with the preparation and guiding your story? Meaning like often what I've seen is like I prepare, I prepare, I prepare. And then you've almost like pre-written the story without having that openness to see where those, you know, four hours of interviews take you. So how do you, how do you balance that out? Well, you said, how do you not drive yourself crazy? And I, <laughs> I drive myself crazy on basically every story I wrote. So that's the first answer is I'm like a shell of a human being for eight weeks as I'm pounding my head against the wall. Um, but I, I think you have to, what you do is you, it's interesting, right? Cause this is something you guys talk about. It's like, you sort of have to relentlessly prepare and that gives you a sense of like, what am I curious about? Like, what are the sort of big themes here that I'm curious about? Whenever you're writing a profile of somebody, you have certain things you have to hit, right? You ha you're going to have to, if it's a new person, like if you're writing this first story about Patrick Mahomes, I wasn't quite, but I was one of the early ones. You have to like tell their backstory and you have to have them walk you through the backstory. So you know you sort of have to hit that. And then you sort of do all that research and you formulate here are the things I'm, I'm curious about. Like, how did you get to be this way? How do you think about things? Who do you go to, to for advice? And so you sort of do all the preparation. You come up with, you allow it to give you questions and you allow it to sort of help you develop a theory about this person. And then you're going in and stress testing that theory with that person, right? So you're saying, I get this sense from you. How, is that right? Do you sense it that way? Um and so it's weird. It's a it's a very imprecise calculus, and I don't know that I'm necessarily articulating it well. But you you allow the preparation to give you a sense of what you want. But then as you go in, it's a conversation, right? And if they open a door that you weren't expecting to walk into, and then you're like, "This is a sort of fascinating room. Like I'm going to spend some time in here, even though I thought I was going to be walking into these two or three other rooms." So it's a little bit of a it's like a it's like a doing being thing, right? Like you, you have a certain, you have an idea of what you're going to do, but then you sort of have to feel it out in the, it's like a dance a little bit. You sort of have to feel it out when you're actually with the person. So let's give you a taste of your own medicine. Walk us through the, the clay skipper backstory. When did you 
first find writing and storytelling something of intrigue? So I grew up uh, in a uh, house. You can see people who listen to the podcast can't see it, but I, I actually live with my dad now and there's a huge wall of books behind me. So I grew up in a house that was like just there were books everywhere. And um, my mom was a big reader. My dad was a big reader. My dad worked in magazines for a long time, started at Rolling Stone um, and then eventually was at ESPN magazine. So like we grew up huge readers and I always liked to write. I think from a young age, I just would sit down and write sort of crazy stories. I had this weird habit of like, <laughs> I used to write about uh, animals that played sports. I don't know why that was, but I like anthropomorphized. I made like all these stories about bunnies playing basketball. Anyway, uh, I was a writer from a young age. And so I think story and writing um, was always interesting to me. And then I went off to college and I studied English. Um, and so I just continued to write a lot. I wrote for the paper when I was in high school. I wrote for, um, I didn't write for like the college paper. I went to Vanderbilt. I didn't write for the Vanderbilt Hustler, but we, there was a sort of like an alternative newspaper I wrote for. And then I was just constantly reading, like reading magazines, reading books. So I think it, it really did start as a, as a passion and like a, a love of mine before it became like a labor of love. And did you work in media right out of undergraduate school? Yeah, so I went to work for um, I did. I went to work for a ESPN two. I went to work for an ESPN two television show called Highly Questionable with Dan Levitard, and it was a sports show. And I was a segment producer on that show. And it was the same office that that produced Pardon the Interruption and Around the Horn, which are ESPN shows, two of the more like popular daily ESPN shows. And so I got to be around a really good a crew of people who really knew what they're doing and really talented. Um, but yeah, I went into media, sports media straight out of school. And then because we did our preparation, um, you should be very honored. Normally we don't prepare much, but we prepared for you. Uh, there's this interesting juncture, unless I prepared, <laughs> ill-prepared or went to the wrong source. So you tell me, but my understanding is there's this interesting juncture where you're thinking about going back to J school to get a graduate degree in journalism. And someone basically says, why don't you just apprentice with Wright Thompson. Um, for those that don't know, Steve briefly hinted at this. I think Wright Thompson's probably the greatest living sports writer and one of the best profile writers. Uh, his story, Michael has left the building that he wrote for MJ's 50th birthday, like gives me chills down my spine every time I even think about it. Um, so did you go apprentice with Wright instead? Like, how did that come about? And my God, we could probably spend hours just talking about what that was like. Yeah, that was, it was a wonderful experience and I'm very, just very, very lucky. Uh, what happened was, um, I mentioned my dad worked at ESPN magazine. So my dad worked at ESPN for a long time and you know, my dad is a very important person in my life and someone I always talk to about, uh, professional stuff with. And so I, I was working as a segment producer on this TV show and I mentioned to him, you know, I've always written, I've always read magazine stories and wondered like, is that something I could do? And he was, at ESPN at the time. And so he knew Wright Thompson, who was a writer there. And this was like 2013, around 2013. And so, or maybe, yeah, around 2013. And Wright was getting ready to go to the World Cup, uh, the 2014 World Cup. And Wright, as you mentioned, writes a lot of feature stories, which are, you basically, you follow one subject for, a, you know, a month, two months. You, you focus on one story for a long period of time. And he was getting ready to go to the World Cup, and he had this idea of he wanted to write 
one story every day for like 16 days. And so he was trying to do something very different, which was instead of focusing on one feature for six weeks, he was going to write a bunch of small stories over the course of a month. And he needed like a research assistant or he thought he was going to need someone to help. So right needed that. I had mentioned to my dad that I was interested in writing. He was like, maybe you should get connected to write and write basically is the one who was like, look, you could go to journalism school. That'll it'll be great. You'll get a great education or you could come and help me with this project. And then maybe we could work together for like a year and you could basically do like an old school apprenticeship, like a sort of vocational training. Um, and so that's what I did. I ended up moving. He lives, he's based in Oxford, Mississippi. And so I moved to Oxford, Mississippi and <laughs> rented a house down the street from him, like literally by 150 yards and just worked through, I helped him with the world cup stuff. And then after that, I stuck with him for about another nine months and just worked with him as he went back to writing feature stories and saw how an ESPN, the magazine story comes together. Everything from how do you cope with the idea? How do you do the reporting? What's the research like? How do you, you know, who do you interview after you do the interviews? How do you turn it into a draft? How do you work through the draft? All that stuff. So it was like an unbelievable training ground. Couldn't have been luckier. So what's it like making that decision to take that jump? Because I have to imagine the the journalism school is the traditional route. It's like the safe thing. You kind of know where that's going and what the end result is and what it sets you up for. But as you just mentioned, like, this is the old school path. This is moving to Mississippi, right? Like, what did it, what pushed you to take that jump? Well, I think the biggest thing was right. I mean, you know, you guys mentioned it, I've mentioned it, but he's just like such an unbelievable talent, right? It's like if I was trying to become a basketball player, someone was like, you can go to basketball camp or Steph Curry's like, you can come hang out with me for a year. It'd be, be kind of crazy to be like, oh, I'm going to try my hand at the old sleepaway basketball camp, you know? So it was really just right. I was like, this guy is, is unbelievable and he's doing magazine writing at the highest level of anyone out there. Like what? better person could I go be with? Um, that was the driving force. That's not to say it wasn't scary. Like I, I moved to Mississippi. I didn't know anybody. Um, to be completely honest, the first night I was there, I remember I was like sitting in this, this uh, new apartment with my boxes, eating like a bad takeout salad, crying because I was like, oh my God, what have I done? Like I have no friends here, blah, blah. And, and the funniest part was right. Wasn't even there for the first three weeks. Cause he was like out traveling and reporting. And so, um, a huge thank you goes, like shout out goes to his, his, uh, wife, who's now one of my really good friends, Sonia. She like took me under her wing and she's like, we're going to give you like the Oxford Mississippi crash course. We're going to, you know, make you feel like it's home and your family. And so it ended up being a great choice, but Right was the driving force, but it wasn't an easy choice. And it definitely was something outside of my comfort zone. But when I look back now, I'm like, thank God I did that because it completely changed the trajectory of my life. And, and what were the big kind of learning moments or takeaways? I know it's probably a lot to summarize, but what are the things you look back on and say, oh, like, thank God I learned that and that shaped who I am in my career? I think the uh, one of the biggest ones, is, again, is that is, I mean, I just remember so many things that Wright told me, right? One is the preparation thing. Um, along with that, he, you know, he taught me that there are four stages to writing any story. And it's like, um, there's the research, there's the reporting, there's the outlining, and there's the writing. 
And he's just like, if you skip on any of those, if you like try to half-ass any of those, it's going to end up showing and you're going to have to end up working harder to like change it. You know, it's like when you do bad work, you have to do more work to undo the bad work. Right. So don't, and that relates a lot to what you guys talk about with mastery. It's like, don't cheat the process. Like there is a process to these things. And if you try to skip out on any of them, it's going to end up costing you. So that was a big one. Um, he also just, he, he taught me about, um, always be taking notes. Like you never know what you're going to use when you go to, when you go to be with someone, just always be writing down, you know, what, what is it, what's happening around them? What are they wearing? What's going on? Like you just never know what you're going to use. So you always write down everything. And then also this was like definitely writing advice, but also is sort of like, I think good life advice was he's like, you just have to, it goes with the taking notes, but you just have to learn to have a reporter's mindset, which is basically, it's about presence. It's like tune into your senses, right? Like, what does it smell like? What does it feel like? What is it? And just like be where you are and, and constantly be like almost like a camera, just recording everything. Um, and I think that was just, again, that was great for the purposes of writing a celebrity profile, but it's also great for the purposes of just being a present person in any conversation. That reminds me of something that a good friend of um, ours, Dave Epstein, who's a great reporter in his own right, always talks about, which is you want to carry a really big basket and you can always find some pebbles to put in it. And yes, that's true when you're reporting, but I think that's just how Dave exists in the world. And then you read his work and you see he's pulling from all of these seemingly disparate areas and um, it's because he's got a big basket. Yeah, I like that. What's the hardest part of that process for you? So the the four-part process, what do you find the most um, tedious? Oh, man. Um, I think I struggle. The researching, I love. The reporting, I struggle with a little bit because, I mean, the type of reporting I was doing was pretty easy, like in terms of your interviews are set up for you. Uh, you can do them over the phone. I wasn't like obviously going you know, landing boots on the ground and trying to walk door to door. So that my reporting, um, was that also pretty buttoned up? I think if I had to be like on the ground boots reporter, I don't know. That's tough. That requires like a lot of discomfort. Um, I would say probably outlining because it's just to go back to something you asked, Steve, it's like, if I do the preparation, I might have a Google doc with like, 70 pages of notes and it's like all right you need to somehow get this down to an eight page paper essentially and then on top of that you don't quite know what you're going to say until you start until you write it right i think marilyn robinson has this great thing she says about writing it's like you don't know what you know until you see what you say and like you can have an idea of what you want to write and you can try to outline it and control it rigorously but there has to be a little room for like one day you're writing and you come to a conclusion you didn't know you had. And so you sort of have to, again, it goes back to the idea of like rigorous preparation, but then allowing for a little bit of a dance. Um, so the outline was always hard for me because it's like, I never quite, the outline, I always want it to be the perfect roadmap and you can't quite ever get it there. And so you have to have a little bit of that psychological discomfort of like, I'm trying to get this as measured as it can be and controlled, but it's, it's always going to be a little bit of a, we'll see what happens when you write it. One more question that is um, a follow-up, but also kind of a, a, a pivot here. What do you make of the transition, at least what I perceive as the transition, between the written long-form interview, 
which you did a lot of. So separate from the profile, but the written long form interview to the podcast format. Because I feel like it used to be that whether it was the New Yorker, Harper's, multiple writers at the New York Times, GQ, like a staple of the written press was the long form interview. And now it's really just you and um, David Marchese at the New York Times who like do this and do it well. I'm curious, like, is that how you've seen it? And in, in, do you do you think like, oh, these shallow, superficial podcasts came and took away this art? Or is it something that you're excited about or neutral? Like, how do you think of the landscape? That's a good question. I think, I, I think it is interesting that the long form interview has gone away. I guess it's probably because podcast is is feels more authentic in a way like i i mean if if i'm thinking about it from the perspective of the person being interviewed like if i'm on a podcast you can hear my tone of voice you can hear like you you kind of get more of an intimate sense of who i am and i think there's less um it's not edited as much you know not that like in a long form interview we're not changing anyone's what they said um but you can you do edit it for length and clarity um, and so I think it's just more of an abridged version of what is offered on a, on a podcast, probably if I'm thinking about it from the interview subjects, um, point of view, that being said, like podcasts take like, you know, you listen to an hour long podcast, you can read that in, in probably 25 minutes. Right. So it's just, it's a total, it's a totally different experience, but it makes sense to me that podcasts have replaced it because when you could, it just, again, goes back, you have more of a. It allows you to activate more of the senses. You get the same content, but you can hear them. Sometimes you can see them. So um, I understand why it has why it has changed a little bit. Do you think that's changed the quality of the the interview a little bit? Because where I go on this, not all podcasts, but some is like if you're doing a long form interview, you know that like all your questions might not get in there. You're going to edit for length, clarity, all that stuff. Like, you know they're not hearing your voice, so you're after information. Well, if I sit down on a podcast, yeah, I might edit some of it, but it's almost a little bit more performative. Where you, you know? Yeah, totally. And the other thing I'll say is I was just giving you an answer from the interview subjects, or from the person being interviewed. But from my perspective, to to put myself in that seat a little bit more, like, a long form interview will often be two conversations that have been condensed down to one interview. So it allows you to get more density of ideas. I think like it's less rambly. It's less, um, it's like a little bit more densely packed with that person because what a lot of times, and you can have more of a trajectory because a lot of times it will happen. I don't know if people know this, but like sometimes you'll read a long form interview. What really, and it just seems like, Oh, I sat down with, with Brad and talked to him for 30 minutes. What really happened is I called Brad. We talked for 90 minutes. I went home. I got the transcript. I read the transcript and I came up with a, a bunch of new questions. I got Brad back on the phone for 45 minutes. I asked him. And so sometimes like, that's why when you read a long form interview, you can be like, man, like this is good. And like, we get to a lot of stuff and it's like, yeah, because we weren't just hanging out for 30 minutes, having a coffee. This was like a big sort of process. And when you write a celebrity profile, that's what happens. I would get two, two hour interviews. I would do the first one. I'd go, you know, the next interview might be the next day. It might be two days, but either way I'd go home, I'd get a transcript. I'd go through it. I'd be like, 
here's what I missed. Here's what I need to follow up on. Here's what I want more clarity on. And so it does allow for the final product to be a, li- a little bit more of a fully packaged thing than just one sort of conversation. And let's see where it goes. Uh, okay. I want to really dive into the weeds here on that. So you go through your first interview, like what's the process like of uncovering and deciding, okay, for this next side, this is what I need to focus on. And the reason I'm asking this, I just want to make it clear is when I read your writing, there's so much of it where I walk away with a new appreciation of the person and different understanding. In particular, I'm thinking about this wonderful Kirk Cousins piece you you wrote where I walked away with a completely different view of this quarterback than 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 I had, even though I knew who he was for years, et cetera. So like how how in that second half do you shape after you've got this more information? So I think what you do, so you go in and this goes back to what you're asking about preparation. So I go in with generally things I know I need to hit. Right. So again, it goes, they have a certain backstory. I have to have them walk me through that a little bit. And then I generally go in with like, here are a bunch of buckets I want to know about. So like with Kirk, I think it was like, how does this guy approach preparation? Um, and there was the larger question of like, why won't anyone give, why won't anyone like, he keeps performing at what seems to be statistically a great, a high level. Why doesn't anyone like quite believe that he deserves that? I think back then it was like when he was going to be franchise tagged by those skins. And so you sort of have these buckets, right? I have the backstory bucket. I have the preparation bucket. I have the, like, why doesn't anyone believe in Kirk Cousins the way he believes in himself bucket? And so the first interview, what you're doing is you come up with a line of questioning and uh, GQ staff, GQ's senior staff writer, Zach Barron, who's like, I think is one of the best in the business, once told me that an interview is just like a series of doors and you're walking your subject up to each door. You're opening it and you're saying, like, do you want to go in this room? And so those buckets sort of give you the doors. Right. And you're trying to walk them through. And hopefully in the first you know, two hour interview, you get a few rooms and you're like, this is great. And I got a lot of great stuff. And then you zoom back and you you get the transcript. You zoom out. You say do I need more here? Like, do I want to go deeper on what we talked about or do I, where else, what other buckets do I need to fill? Like I got my backstory bucket filled. I got a little bit on preparation, but I didn't get any on the sort of larger theme. So then that gives you an idea for the second, um, the second interview where you need to go. Now, a first, a first, the first interview could go bad and you could walk them up to a bunch of doors and they don't want to go in any of them. And then you're sort of in trouble. Um, but that's generally how I approach it is I have these, buckets i'm going to try to see which buckets they're interested in exploring and then after the first one i'm going to see like maybe we just maybe this one bucket is so interesting we just stay there or maybe it wasn't good and we try to fill one of the other ones are you thinking about your reader at all during this process or are you just in the moment following your curiosity i think in the moment i'm following my curiosity because i think i'm thinking about the reader in the preparation phase and trying to figure out what are the things i i need to get and then that moment i'm like thinking about the reader but once i'm actually at the interview with the subject then i'm just following my my curiosity and then related do you have a pre-interview routine or something that you do to try to get yourself in the right state of mind and does that vary if you're going to be in person versus uh virtual it varies i'll answer the last part first it varies a little bit virtual and in person just because 
virtual, I can sort of have my notes with me, especially if it's over the phone, right? You can like be looking at your notes while you're talking to the person, which I actually don't know if that's an advantage. Like the control freak part of me would always be like, that's a huge advantage, but it makes you a little less present. Whereas in person, I'm just in the sort of conversation. But um, my process is I go through and I read everything and I throw a bunch of stuff into a Google doc and then like just notes, like a quote that this person said or an idea or something. And then I, once I have all the reading done, I go back through the Google doc, which, you know, could be quite long at that point. And I basically start figuring out what follow-up questions do I have based on what I thought was the most interesting material. I write all of those questions down. That could be 60 questions, right? And then I go through the questions and I start putting them in those buckets I was talking about. Like, oh, there's 12 questions about, you know, uh, for Kirk Cousins, you know, he's a very religious person. So there are 12 questions maybe about religion. So it's like, maybe that's a bucket. Maybe we talk about his faith. I sort of organize the questions that way. I read through them all a bunch of times. So I sort of get them in my head. So I have an idea of what I'm curious about. And then when I go in the interview, I try to just like, let it go and be like you all these questions came from your brain so you're in there you don't need to follow a script just follow what you're curious about and let everything you wrote inform how this conversation goes but you don't necessarily need to ask every question that was in there it's just to give you a sense of what you're curious about and then you also presumably release from the agenda quite a bit maybe especially for the in-person ones like i'm thinking of the story you wrote on joel Embiid, and like you spent I don't know, probably 30 minutes to him talking about chicken wings. And I'm sure that wasn't in your prep, but you walked into his house and there's just chicken wings everywhere. He's got bodyguards bringing him chicken wings. He claims the chicken wings are for his girlfriend. And it's like just chicken wings everywhere, um, which also really like humanizes this, you know, enormous monster of an NBA basketball player. Yeah. Yeah. That was <laughs> so much chicken in his apartment. It was unbelievable. Um, yeah. I think one thing to never forget is like we can have, the acts again to go back to the access what my unique advantage more than anything else is i'm getting to spend time with people that nobody else really gets to spend time with right so we can have a discussion but we can talk for two hours and what they tell me may not be nearly as interesting as what is it like to be in joel Embiid's apartment right like joel Embiid talking about playing in the nba may not be as interesting as what is it like to see what a, you know a seven foot a seven foot basketball player lives like um and so you always have to be cognizant of that aspect of the access as well. And then, yeah, you ha do have to go off script. I interviewed Jalen Ramsey one time, who's a cornerback in the NFL. And I was just going to talk to him about what is it like to be, you know, a hot young talent in the NFL? What, you know, you just came from Florida state. What's it like making that transition? And the minute I turned on my recorder, he just started talking trash about every quarterback. Right. And so I was like, well, I could stick to my script of like, what is your, what do you do in the weight room? But instead he was like, Josh Allen is trash. And so I'm like, great. What do you think of like Joe Burrow? And he's like trash. And so then I'm like, all right, cool. Let's keep going here. And, and that would have been a case where, you know, at the end of that, I look at my Google doc and I'm like, I didn't ask any of the questions, but I got something great that I never could have imagined I would have gotten if I hadn't just gone with where the conversation went. I think it's an interesting observation that I'm having right now, and um, it's it's so clear in your work that when you talk to someone, you're treating that as an end in and of itself, not a means to an end. And I think that 
a trap that Steve and I fall into, and maybe it's not a trap, maybe it's just a slightly different objective, is when we're doing research and reporting for a book, we've got this chassis and this idea and this framework. And when we go talk to someone, like, yes, we have to be flexible, but ultimately, like, we're working up to a thesis that we're trying to prove. And if someone comes in and blows up the thesis and it's credible, well, then, yeah, we need to take that seriously. But generally speaking, like, we've got limited real estate in a book, and we're going to this person for something. Whereas what I'm hearing you say is like, you're really just going to have the best, most interesting conversation possible because that's the end product. Uh, And that's really neat. And it definitely shines through in your work. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I think I, I, I do think you go in with a theory, but you just, because what you want to do when you're writing a profile is you want to develop a theory of a person and put, put that theory forth so that the reader understands them better. And so you're going to refine that you come up, you do the preparation, you come up with a theory and you're going to talk to them and to talk to secondaries, people who know them, you interview people who know them well, and that refines your theory of their character, but you don't let that theory get in the way of like, what could be a way more dynamic, interesting exchange than you had anticipated getting. So it seems like me, you know, one of the underlying themes is like just playing with this tension Right, this tension between like how how firmly or loosely do I hold my theory versus like let my curiosity drive? Um, how much do I let my preparation, you know, you know, drive the ship versus like just trusting my in- instinct? And I think that tension is like central to not just interviewing; it's central to like writing. We go through the same thing. I think it's central to performing in sports like how much do i let the prep do the work but then be able to let go and just trust myself uh when i play so i i'm just curious like your thoughts on that that central tension and and how you kind of again wrestle with it and find the appropriate uh, balance yeah, it's, a, it's such a great question. I'm smiling. Again, people can't see because it's a podcast, but I'm smiling and shaking my head when you're saying that because I was actually thinking as you were talking, like, it reminds me a lot of running, right? Like, I mean, I have trained, like, I, I've trained for a few marathons and I have an idea of what I, what you know, I do all the training. I have an idea of what pace I want to run. And then the race starts and you're like, damn, I feel good. Like, I think I can go faster. Like, am I really going to stay at this pace because that was what I was supposed to stay at or, and I'm going to try to go faster or the opposite. Like I always think I was going to run this pace, but today it's hot and humid. And like, I'm not going to hit that. So like, what is the, where are we going to be at now? Right. And so it's really a question of like something you guys both talked about in your books is like presence, right? You just, you just try to be where you're at and see like, what is this moment giving me? And that could be the case on a run. It could be the case in an interview. It's just like, you have an idea of what a thing's going to be. Those are your expectations. Then you meet the reality and you just try to work with the reality to get the, you know, to be wherever that is, as opposed to what you thought it was going to be. And I do think that is like, it is one of the central tensions of life. I think, man, I am here for all running analogies. Brad is (laughs) shaking his head in, in displeasure because we have way too many, but I think you're spot on because like, again, in my own experience running, or coaching others, there are so many times where you see someone who maybe feels great, but then looks down at their watch and thinks like, oh no, this is too fast according to my pre, pre-planned you know, plan. And it's like, no, in that moment, maybe it's 
is faster because you're ready to make that jump. So that tension there, as you explained, is 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 spot on. I love that. Um, I want to I want to pivot to something that you said earlier. And looking at your screen and seeing the hundreds of books behind you, what early on to get into writing, like what kind of reader were you, and has that changed? Oh, good question. Um, it's definitely changed in the sense that I, I mean, when I was at GQ, I also did. We've talked a lot about sports. I did a lot of sort of wellness psychology um, reading too, and so I got pretty, I got pretty obsessed with like self help. I called it self improvement for a long time, but it, it was really self help. Uh, I guess it's the same thing. But I, I say that because I got the way my reading changes. I started reading for like learning more, like more to like okay, what for applied science? I guess you could call it like not that self help is really science, pseudoscience, but like what can I take from this and use in my life? Whereas I think as a kid, I was just like hoovering up fiction. Um, I was definitely more of a fiction guy. And now I'm usually have like one nonfiction and one, um, fiction book going. So I think I read a little bit more for how, what is like something I can take out of this, like syringe out of this, inject into my own life more than just escape than I used to. Um, but from the beginning, I've just read, 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 read. For me, I feel lucky that it's something that brings me a lot of peace and joy. And so it's just something that I've always done and hopefully will continue to do. So, so once again, I want to point out this tension as like, once you start, your job is, is partially to read. Like, how do you prevent that from destroying reading? Because like now it's a requirement to read all these self-improvement, self-help, whatever books, right? Yeah. I definitely, I mean, it definitely becomes a little, like, it can become overwhelming. Now I'm like underlining all my books and I'm like, how am I going to get all these thoughts into, you know, a Google doc? <laughs> you guys are really getting uh, a sense of how often I use Google docs. How am I going to get it from the Google doc into my brain? Um, so I do think it's important to just every once in a while be like, all right, I'm looking around to see if I have a book nearby, but like I'm reading demon copperhead right now. And it's like, I live no way. on the West that side just of New showed, York. That just showed up on my, um, on my porch yesterday. Yeah, it's great. It's minds. great. It's great. So I'm like, just go outside and like read for an hour and just enjoy it. Um, yeah, it's quite good. It's very good. Cool. Uh, okay. One follow up on that, on the, the, the nonfiction, the stuff that you're writing notes on, what's your process? Like uh, the details on like, cause that's something I, you know, that's central to what Brad and I do. Like half our job is reading books so that we can eventually take some of that knowledge and apply. Um, but what's your process in highlighting transcribe, like taking notes, et cetera. Uh, from stuff that you're going to use. So if it's specifically for an interview, like for what well, I've interviewed both of you guys, I've been lucky enough to do that. And um, your books are somewhere here, but I, I basically would just read and underline and jot notes down. And I do, I don't stop while I'm doing it. I just read all the way through, jot it down. And then when I'm finished, I'll take the book, I'll sit with my computer and I'll just go back through every page. And sometimes if I really like the line, I'll type it out. But mostly again, it's just like, I'm writing little things in the margins, sort of question, either questions I have or just little notations that remind me of, are meant as sort of like a, a reminder of like, oh, this is a, this is on, you want to follow up on this thing. Um, so that's generally the idea is like, I underline a bunch, I write in the margins and then I'll go back through and as I'm doing my Google doc that I always do before an interview, I'll allow those marginalia to like inform the questions. If I'm just reading for fun, um, 
I guess I'm using fun loosely there if I'm reading, but I guess for pleasure, but I'm trying to get something from the book um, more than just like enjoyment. Um, then I will also underline. And sometimes I, I mean, I have whole books like um, Jenny O'Dell's book, how to do nothing was like a huge book that changed how I thought about stuff. Uh, fin- uh, Finite and infinite games by James Carsey, which I know you guys have covered like that changed those ones. I'll actually go through and I will type out all the things that, like all the lines I like and I'll make notes underneath them. And I just keep that in a doc. And sometimes I'll be on an airplane. I'll open that doc up and I'll go and I'll check that out and I'll just read that. And I I find that really interesting to go back and revisit sort of the sentiments that I found sort of groundbreaking or allowed me to reorient my perspective in a, in a profound way. Yeah, we're big, we're big Jenny O'Dell fans over here. We always joke that of the, um, and sometimes we push against this genre, but of the, the kind of like anti-work genre. There's a lot of people that write these anti-work books and then work 24-7 to market their anti-work books. Whereas very few people have read Jenny O'Dell's books because Jenny O'Dell is like out in her garden, not working mm-hmm. on her books. Yeah. Like she, she really lives it. Um, How do you guys so, feel about that though? Can I ask you a question? I mean, like, cause I sometimes feel like that process is, it's, it's never ending. Like sometimes I'm, it sometimes gives me anxiety because I'm like, I'm never going to get all this, I'm never going to get to all the books, obviously. Duh, that's an obvious thing to say. And I'm not going to get all the sort of nuggets of wisdom I want out of it. And I worry I'm just sucking myself into a vortex of like, you know, a, a, a sort of never-ending game, I guess, if you will. Do you guys feel like you have a good handle on your notes? In terms of notes or reading? In terms of both. In terms of both, I would say. Yeah. So the 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 reading thing for me is I can't read nonfiction and like you, there's no work life separation in your brain, right? Mm -hmm. So I can't read nonfiction without highlighting, underlining, thinking like, Oh, I could place this in this piece I'm working on, or this would be an interesting newsletter. Um, as a result, I read a lot of fiction Mm -hmm. and that's because fiction, I can turn off my brain and just like really enjoy a book because fiction feels so foreign to how I could work. I mean, a good novel just seems impossible. Like People that can do that, amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I escape. And then in terms of the note-taking process, um, you know, I think we're just a little bit older than you, so maybe this comes with um, with age and, and age-related cognitive decline. But I don't worry about that as much. I used to worry about it all the time and have all these systems, and now like, I just marginalize the books and throw them on the bookshelf, and I'm like, yeah, like hopefully I'll be able to find what I need when I need it. And I'm sure that there are things that I don't find as a result of that, but I think the benefit is that like it saves me the stress of feeling like I need to capture everything when it's it's just impossible to capture everything. And then the last thing I'll say is long longtime listeners and, and readers of the Growth Equation newsletter know I do have this process where I take 3M sticky notes and I turn them upside down. So like I'm sticking them up on the the book so they're popping out. And then I write like little keywords mm. that remind me of what's on the page. And then I do try to organize my books like loosely by subject matter, or at least how my brain conceives of them as subject matter. So when I go to my bookshelf with an idea to write an essay, let's say for the New York Times or something, I can go to a specific section of my bookshelf, look at those 14 books, and then just flip through the sticky notes popping out of the book to like reorient. And then I can launch in from there. So I'm not, I'm not actually that Zen. People are like, you just said you forgot about it. And then you walk me through a, you know, 45 minute process. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm similar, but a little bit different. I think the most, 
where Brad and I differ is I don't really read fiction. Occasionally I do, but I'm like the world's slowest reader. So like if I want to get through a book, like it takes me a long time. So like I essentially have made the choice to say if I'm getting a book, getting through a book, it's going to have a purpose and a point. Um, so most of mine is nonfiction on that. As far as my my note taking, uh, like you, I'm a big underliner or highlighter. The only thing that I do different is instead of a sticky note, I just have a piece of paper with each book and I write, you know, the page number and then three or four words on a big topic that's covered. And then I just have that piece of paper in every book so that when it comes to, you know, book writing, I just go back and I'm like, I look at my bookshelf and I'm like, oh yeah, in this book, I think there was something on resilience or toughness. And I just pull out that piece of paper and I just scroll down and see where it is, go to that page. And and then, then and then what I do differently there is if I have a, a big project, like a, a book that I'm writing, then I take quotes from that book and dump it all into a either a Google Doc or a Word Doc and just dump everything there. And then as part of that kind of outlining research process that you talked about, part of my outlining is then taking that and organizing it mm. before I kind of or outline the actual books so that I know where I'm robust in terms of like research or other, you know, opinions and, and ideas and where I might need to kind of dial in my reading as I'm, I'm going through this kind of writing process. Absolutely. All right. We're not going to let you, we're not going to let you get off ending this with you <laughs> asking us questions, Clay. Um, so on the topic of books, and then I got one more quick shift. What are your favorite books? Let's go to your top three nonfiction and fiction. Wow. Uh, oh man. I can't really think of that ahead of time that you might ask that. Um, I, I think I got to do for nonfiction, I think How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. I know I just mentioned it, but um, that really changed my perspective on both social media and the sort of attention economy um, and then how to think differently about productivity or why productivity is even um, why even thinking that way is maybe a, a bad way to think in general. Um I'm going to go with one of our guys, Brad. I don't know, Steve, if you're as big of a fan, but Mark, uh, Mark Epstein. Um, I'm, I've read so many of his books. Um, the one that I, I, I'm trying to think, I can't actually remember. Help me here, Brad. It's called uh, Going... It's not... It's Going like to everything. Pieces Without Falling Apart. Yeah, yes. it's the greatest yes. nonfiction yes. book I've ever read. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Pema Chodron, uh, When Things Fall Apart, would probably be the third non-fiction book fiction books um i think portrait of the artist as a young man by james joyce like that it's a little bit of a pretentious answer but that was the book that i think made me fall in love with writing because i was lucky enough to have a teacher in high school who taught like was unbelievably adept at teaching that book and i think i was sort of flummoxed reading it and like didn't quite understand it. And then to have her like explain it in a way that opened the book up to me, I was like, Oh wow, this is really, um, really, really powerful. Uh, and so I think it really made me fall in love with re with reading and writing, um, a little life by Hanya Yanagihara. I think, uh, that book is devastating, but beautiful. And then 
the last book, fiction book, I'd go with uh, George Saunders' book, probably uh, maybe 10th of December or Lincoln and the Bardo, one of those. Love it. So in our list of top six, we have two in common. So I'd, I'd go Lincoln and the Bardo is in my top three and then um, going to pieces without falling apart. So kindred spirits. All right. I said that I was going to shift and um, you mentioned GQ in past tense. You were full-time with the magazine up until about six months ago, and now you're doing freelance work. Um, has your routine shifted? And, and I don't want to open up a door that we're going to be in the room for another hour. I'm sure you could talk about this, but maybe just shed some light on like how you structure your day um, in terms of like taking care of yourself and creativity and, and making sure that that well is, is hopefully robust um, in, in then doing the work. Yeah, I would say, so let me first say that I'm going to give you an answer, but uh, this is my ideal day and I would say I rarely hit it. <laughs> but if I, um, but if I can hit some of these, I'm happy. So I, first thing I usually do is I try to sit and meditate uh, for at least 20 minutes. Um, I have definitely not been as consistent with that as I regularly uh, would like to, I would not, I've not been as consistent as I would like to be. Um, but I try to do that first. Then I, and that's probably, I mean, I, I don't set an alarm. I just try to like, I usually wake up early. I'm not someone who's going to sleep in until noon. So I just like, I do exercise a lot. So I try to let my body sleep as long as it needs to. So I usually, that'll be sometime between six 30 and seven 30. I'll wake up, I'll try to sit for 20 minutes. Then I'll make a pot of coffee using a French press. And then I try to, for the next two and a half, three hours, I try to do like creative work. That's a very, that's a very sort of loose bucket because right now, because I am freelance projects come in and come out. So creative work could just be reading, right. It could be like, uh, reading a book about, I'm currently reading a book about Buddhism. That's all about like emptiness. So it could be reading that for an hour and just taking notes. It could be writing the routine excellence Q and a that I do for GQ. It could be brainstorming, um, magazine pitches I want to send to, uh, to editors to see if, you know, I can write a freelance story. So that's usually takes me to like, uh, around 10, 30, 10, 45, 11. Then I usually exercise, um, that could be a lift. It's a running often could be yoga. That will take me to lunch. I'll have some lunch. Then I, after lunch, cause I'm usually in sort of like, Oh man, I kind of need a nap now mode. I'll do something like emails and I'm a big batch email guy, which I got from Cal Newport. So I'll set my, set my timer for like, Again, because I'm freelance, I don't have a ton of emails to answer. So I'll set a timer. I use my Garmin watch, 30, 45 minutes. I blast through as many emails as I can. Once I'm done with that, um, I'll usually have another period of like reading or creative work. And then honestly, like I'm usually <laughs> done by like four. I'm sort of like, you know, and then I might, I sometimes will exercise again. Um, but that's usually, that's usually the routine. That's making Jenny Odell proud. Yeah, exactly. And before I used to, in the winter and spring, I was coaching track at a boys high school. And so I would do the same thing. But after I would do like the emails or right after lunchtime, I would go and go to track practice, which was five days a week or track meet. So that is the general structure. And if I can hit it 
four days out of the week, I'd be quite happy if I hit it, you know, three days I'm doing, I'm doing all right. So it's good to have goals in life and to uh, not try to beat yourself up too much when you don't hit them. Uh, all right. We, we couldn't le- let you leave without, you know, asking about that, that little tidbit that you brought up coaching track. Why, why the choice to coach high school track athletes? Like, what did that bring to you? <laughs> so there's a bit of backstory, which is when I was at GQ, Nike every year, they sponsor the Chicago Marathon. And so they put together a media team and they reach out to a bunch of publications and they ask, you know, media members if they want to run with Nike, they provide coaching gear and then you, you know, and then you write about it. Or, I mean, that's, that's the trade-off, right? To just be open about it it's like they want publicity and we want to run a marathon so like how can we mutually benefit one another and so i got connected with a nike run coach um whose name is rebecca stowe and she and i just became like very very good friends and she is the head coach at collegiate and i've gotten like pretty at collegiate boys school in new york and i've gotten like more pretty serious about running uh in the last several years i mean I feel weird saying serious about running in the, in the presence of Steve Magnus, but like ser- pretty serious for a civilian. And, um, and so Rebecca is the head coach of high school and she, you know, they, they have a bunch of kids and she needed extra hands basically. I mean, high school kids, they, there are four coaches at collegiate already. I was the fifth coach and um, I have some technical knowledge, but I, I think they have sort of what they need from a technical standpoint. They just, they needed like a, uh, another set of hands someone who could be good with the kids. And so that's, um, really what I was brought in for. And I did that from November to March. And then they asked if I wanted to do middle school in the spring. And so I went down to seventh and eighth grade and did that. And it was cool. It was fun. I mean, again, I, what I got out of it was you learn a lot by coaching, right? You sort of like, it teaches you some things. Um, and then it was also like a lot of what you guys talk about. Frankly, with the high school kids, I probably was less effective, but because they 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 know sort of what they're doing from like a routine and discipline standpoint. It was really fun working with the seventh and eighth graders because what you're teaching them is like accountability and like how do you show up and how do you like do things you don't want to do. A lot of the stuff like you guys talk about, right? And why I love reading the growth equation, reading your books, listening to podcasts. Uh, so that was fun because that was a lot of what I did at GQ, a lot of what I consume on my own. And so taking those lessons and imparting those to the kids, like that was definitely the most fun part of it. Clay, I, I just want to thank you for the insightful conversation. You really are world-class at, at what you do. So it, it it brought so much insight. But more than that, I just have to thank you from me for ending at track and running so that we can annoy Brad to death, but our audience will love it. So thank you very much. Of course. Of course. No, this is so fun. Uh, Big fans of you guys. And so always so happy to talk to you. Thanks, Clay. Uh, Listeners, we appreciate y'all joining in for today's conversation. Hope that you found it as fun and valuable as we did. Uh, Just as a reminder, if you like the show and you aren't yet subscribed, be sure to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. This ensures that every time we drop a new episode, you get it. And if you are subscribed, please share the show with your friends, your colleagues, your family. Uh, The more people wrestling with these ideas and engaging in these kinds of conversations, the better. With that, we'll catch you next Wednesday. 